0: Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 16. You can begin to find your way there. John 16, 16 through 24. The last Sunday of every month we are in the Gospel of John so that our kids who are normally in kids' worship get a chance to kind of journey through a book with us and kind of get a sense of that. And of course, as we take the Lord's Supper, we've been doing this together for a number of years, uh, studying the Gospel of John. And so in 16, 16 through 24, let me just kind of set the stage and remind you of some of the things that have taken place. You get into chapter 13, about thir- verse 31 or so, and, and John begins what becomes the, the farewell discourse, or kind of this farewell address of Jesus where he's prepping the disciples for his departure. He's telling them what it's going to be like when he's gone, how to understand and make sense of the world in the absence of Jesus. And so t- today we pick up really what's kind of the next to last one of those. And so the next time we're together, we will conclude this uh, farewell discourse of Jesus, which, which completes there in chapter 16, right before the high priestly prayer in chapter 17. And so Jesus is, is really wanting the disciples in some sense to understand what life is gonna be like for them emotionally after he leaves, and so in his, in his death, the time between his death and his resurrection, and he wants them to understand or begin to get a sense that the whole paradigm shifts on the basis of the resurrection. Of course, he's, he's not coming right out and telling them, hey, look, so just so you know, I'm going to be uh, crucified, things are going to get weird for a little bit, then I'm going to be resurrected and and things are going to get much better for you. And so he always kind of couches it when he discusses it It speaks to them in terms of I'm going to go away. Now he'll say over and over again, the son of man has to be handed over, he's got to suffer and these things. But the disciples, for whatever reason, don't really get this, they don't really connect to this and understand. And of course, we saw that last week in the road to Emmaus where Jesus fits the puzzle together nicely for them and they say, Ah, now we get it. Now we understand exactly what he was saying. But as it opens up in verse 16, Jesus throws out a statement that the disciples hear and they haven't the foggiest uh, what Jesus is on about. They can't quite figure out what he's talking about. Look at this, verse 16. It says, a little while and you'll see me no longer. Again, a little while and you'll see me. So again, a little while, you'll see me no longer. Again, a little while, and you'll see me. In essence, he says, look, you see me now? And they're like, yeah, we see you. He's like, aha, in a little while, that's not going to be true. And they're like, well, I don't really understand what you're talking about. What's the deal with a little while? Uh, the disciples are, are wrangling in some sense with, with, it doesn't make sense to us, one, that you're going away, and two, it doesn't make sense to us, what exactly are you talking about? How long is this little while you're describing? So verse 17 says effectively the same thing. He says, so some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? A little while and you'll not see me again. In a little while you'll see me. And, and all this because I'm going to the father business. What is Jesus talking about? So we get the sense in verse 18 that this is the overriding sense of all of their conversations. And, and they just come right out and say it. We don't know what he's talking about. We just don't get it. So you can imagine they're in this group and Jesus has this kind of statement which on the surface seems to communicate he's going away, right? And so we read it, again, a little while and you see me, again, a little while you won't see me. And so we understand that. The disciples hear this, and there are a number of different things competing in their mind that make it difficult for them to understand this. One, if Jesus is the Messiah and they believe him to be the Messiah, there are a number of different things that he has to accomplish within their minds. Foremost being, he's gotta drive the Romans out. It makes no sense in their mind for to have a, a, a foreign occupation there in Jerusalem. It makes no sense for us not to have a terrific amount of autonomy as a nation. It makes no sense that the Messiah wouldn't just completely drive these people out. What is he talking about this in a little while and you'll see me no longer? We don't understand that. And so if he's the Messiah, he, he's got to accomplish this. How is he going to accomplish this if he plans to go away? His going away makes no sense to us. Ergo, we don't understand what in the world he's talking about with a little while. Does he have to run to town to grab some bread? What's going on? We just had a meal in chapter 13. What's he talking about? And none of them understand. They turn to Peter. Peter, do you understand what he's talking about? Peter's like, I have it the foggiest, but I'm never going to leave his side. Uh, John, do you know what he's talking about? I don't, but as you know, I am the beloved disciple. Matthew, you, you still have that whole tax collector thing kind of hanging over you. We're not so sure. Judas, where did you, where did, you, anybody know where Judas went? Is never around. And so they're talking about it. Now Jesus, verse 19, tells us that he knew what they wanted to ask him. Now this points to a couple of things. It points likely that he, he, he's been with this group, right? And so he knows their hearts. He knows how incredibly difficult the days that they're preparing to enter into are going to be for them. He knows how uh, much it's going to try them. He knows how they're going to feel towards Peter in his rejection of Jesus. And so he's acutely aware of these things, and he knows that this is the question that they can't let go. And so he says in verse 19, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by in a little while and you're not seeing me again, in a little while you'll see me. And of course, the disciples aren't given a chance to respond. And so all they want to know is, what do you mean by a little while? And Jesus, being the master teacher, understands that this is fundamentally the wrong question that they need to be asking him. And the answer to it isn't all that helpful. It's not going to change the things they're going through. It's not going to change how they feel. And it's not going to affect the outcome uh, one way or another. And so he answers and gives them the question, or rather the answer to the question that they should have asked. And look what he says. They want to know what a little while means. and Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. So if you're the disciples, right, you hear this, all you really wanted to know, like are you talking five minutes, 30 minutes, like half, do you need an afternoon alone? I get that we can be tiresome. Like I get, we've got a lot of questions, especially Peter. We've got a lot of questions. We make a lot of false assumptions, but really we just want to know what a little while means. And Jesus is like, you're going to weep and lament. They're like, we're doing that now. We want to know what a little while means. But from Jesus' vantage point, imagine that, that if you knew what someone was going to go through prior to their going through it, and you're trying to prep, you're trying to get them ready to experience something difficult or even something great. Right? This is something we've all have experienced. When somebody comes up to you and they say, I have a great surprise for you. Now, I can tell you when somebody says that to me, the first thing I do is I lower my expectations. Because I'm not a great actor. And so the first couple of times, somebody said, I have a great surprise for you. It's going to be amazing. And I'm thinking, like, free car. You're going to pay my house note. Just something amazing has happened. They're like, you can get two for one on Cheerios. Oh, friends, we need to talk about what, what constitutes great news and a surprise. This is, this is mundane or ordinary in Cheerios. That's like the bottom of the barrel for delicious cereals. Have you tried Lucky Charms? They put marshmallows in there. And as an adult, you can just eat the marshmallows. And so Jesus is is preparing them. He wants them to understand how difficult this is going to be for them so that when the difficulty hits, they're not broken and overcome with emotion. You can imagine that if the disciples woke up and Jesus was gone, And and, and they just, they think, we never had a heads up, we didn't know what was going, so he's preparing them for the difficulty of this, and he describes it so incredibly powerfully, he says, you're going to weep, and you're going to lament. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, anytime he's described weeping, it's always been in connection with someone's death. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing, he wants them to know the thing you're preparing to go through. In the midst of this little while is going to be profoundly difficult, and it will bring you to the very end of yourself. And of course, we think about all the things that are going to happen in this, this intervening time. Peter, who's clearly the head of the disciples, like he's the mouthpiece, he's the one kind of leading. He, he gets a lot, of, uh, a lot of descriptions within the, the gospel narratives. Peter's gonna fail. He's not just going to fail a little bit. He's going to fail spectacularly, and he's going to do the very thing he said he would not do. So Jesus knows this. He knows how hard it's going to be for Pete. He knows how hard it's going to be for the disciples to bring him back into their group. So he tells them, you're going to weep. Now we read through the Gospels, and the first time you encounter Judas' name in the Gospels, it says, Judas, the one who would betray him. So we're previously disposed to being jaded towards Judas. So you read his name, and you just kind of discard him. But imagine having traveled with Judas, imagine having slept on the ground beside Judas, imagine having been in danger with him and then finding out he sold you all down the river. He turned on Jesus. He's absolutely a traitor to the group. So you don't have anger towards him, you're broken, you're disillusioned, you're confused. How could we have been here? How could we have been in that same place? How could he have washed all of our feet? How could we have followed? And and he left. How could that have happened to Judas? You look and you see Jesus be mocked, be beaten. You you saw him walk out with a cross. You you heard the cry out. You saw the crowd that had been so enthused when you guys came in on the triumphal entry turn. Like, where were all those people that were throwing down jackets and and, and palm branches, where did they go? So the sense of loss, the sense of disappointment, the sense of betrayal results in in two options for you. You're going to weep and you're going to lament. Jesus said, this is what awaits you. And what makes it truly difficult is that when he juxtaposes it, when he puts it right beside what the world's going to do. He says, you're going to be broken, you're going to be sorrowful, and the world's going to rejoice. And so the, the, the worst you feel about this, the world around you is just in celebration because it looks and Jesus has been crucified. He's been put to death. And so we get a sense that, that the world is, is, is set apart. It is opposed to the emotional aspect of the disciples. And we see that same thing today, right? When you celebrate the good things of God in your life, we see a world that either completely denies the reality of Jesus, or is completely indifferent to Jesus. And we see many of the people who are completely indifferent to Jesus come into our churches. And so they see church as a good moral thing and an obligation to do, but in terms of Jesus and his mandates, Jesus and and what it is to live for him, they're completely indifferent to that. Jesus seems to be a little bit pushy. But I do like the idea of getting together with people who have a natural moral leading. And so we see that In this, he says, the world is going to rejoice. Now, this is the same world that's spoken of in John chapter 1. In the beginning of John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And all these things were made through him and with him, and not anything was made that was not made in him, in him was life and life was the light of men and the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And all this is the description of Jesus. And then you jump down to verse nine. And it says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This world that sees Jesus and says, you're misguided. This world that sees Jesus and says, you are too demanding, this world that sees Jesus and says, you are to be discarded, rejoices at his death. How much more difficult is it to be sad when everybody around you is happy? You're lost and broken and weeping. Everybody around you rejoices. Nobody knows your sadness. Nobody kind of connects with you in this moment. And this is what the disciples are getting prepared to face. Jesus tells them, you're going to weep and lament. The world is going to rejoice. But Look at what he says to them next. He says, but your sorrow will turn to joy. He says, you have an incredibly difficult few days. You have an incredibly difficult future coming and coming soon. In, in, in the greatest moments of your difficulty, everybody around you is going to be celebrating because the religious leaders are going to think that this whole thing has been squashed and been put to death. But I've got to tell you that on the other side of your sorrow, on the other side of your mocking, on the other side of your rejection, stands a radically different future. I'm going to turn your sorrow into joy. Now, there's something fantastic that we discover within the pages of Scripture. The fact that, that God is the one who turns sadness into joy, who turns sorrow into gladness. The prophet Jeremiah wrote about this in Jeremiah 31:13. Speaking from the vantage point of God, he said, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. This is what our God is doing. And so when we find ourselves in the midst of this, when the disciples found themselves in the midst of this, they had this understanding that their joy wasn't fundamentally going to come through looking at the world as a glass half full instead of a glass half empty. It wasn't going to come to them, they weren't going to find joy in the midst of their sorrow from pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, from having a better outlook on life or surrounding themselves with a better group of people. Fundamentally, sorrow moves to joy on on the part of God's divine sovereign movement and his gracious extension in giving to people joy. And this is what the disciples had to wait on. They had to wait on the movement of God to take them from sorrow to joy. So Jesus wants them to understand it a little bit more, and so he speaks to them by way of a metaphor. And so, anyway, verse 21, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Now, I've clearly not given birth to any children, but, but we recognize, and if you've talked to very many women, they'll tell you that the whole ordeal of giving birth is unpleasant. It's unpleasant, right? This is why we see all of these things enacted where when a woman's... Uh, delivering a child, and so there's the screaming and, and, you know, there's kind of the speaking in tongues, not within our biblical context, but just when a whole manner of thing. We have whole, whole uh, operations and, and, and things done, a whole enterprise to try and diminish that pain, to relieve it. And we find that, that pain exists prior to the fall. It's greatly increased after the fall. And so he's using this as this metaphor for what the disciples are preparing to go through. So he goes on, he says, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. In essence, he's telling them it's going to be worth it. When you make it to the far side of your sorrow, you're going to look at it and you're going to say, it was worth it. It was worth it. The pain that they're going to have to endure is worth it because of what rests and what awaits on the far side. So Jesus turns to them in verse 22, and he says, so also you have sorrow now. Now, how do they have sorrow now and they have more sorrow awaiting them in the future? This sounds just like a sorry lot for the disciples. Well, Jesus has already introduced the fact that one of their number is going to betray them. He's told them over and over again that he's going to leave them. And when Peter said, I'm gonna be with you to the end, Jesus said, no, you're not. You're gonna abandon me as well. So Jesus has introduced this, this change in their dynamic as things become more intense close to the end of his life. So he says, even now in the midst of this, you can tell that in our group, there's difficulty, that in our group, our band of disciples, there is this difficulty that has been introduced into, and you have a sense that I have set my eyes on the cross. So that it introduces sorrow into their group. He says, even now, you have Sorrow. But look at how their sorrow is affected. He says, But I will see you again. And then, quoting Isaiah 66 14, he says, And your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. What is, or when is the joy going to return to the disciples? Is it the seeing of Jesus again? See, Jesus didn't tell them, look, I'm going to go away, and the pain's going to be incredibly overwhelming, but at some point, you're going to be numb to the pain. Like, at some point, you're just going to be fine, and you're going to muddle through life, and it's going to be difficult, but you're going to find it in yourself, you're going to find it in the group of people around you, you're going to rally around this, and it's going to be okay. That tends to be what we communicate to people. That tends to be what the vast majority of people within our our community and our homes and our schools are told. That it's going to be okay. You're going to muddle through somehow this sorrow that seems so incredibly acute, that seems so real and present in your life, that obscures your vision and ability to see anything else outside of it. This sorrow will not be the end of life. And they found that reality in this person's, in this group's ability to overcome. And I can tell you that, that, in and of ourselves, in and of our own natural ability, we do not have the ability to overcome sorrow. We don't. And we're setting, so, we're setting people up for failure when we tell them that they do. When you go to somebody who has lost a child, when you go to somebody whose spouse has left them, they've lost a job, they're facing sickness and all these things, and you tell them, look, it sounds like a bad lot in life for you. You just need to get over it. Like, you just need to move past this. And so, well, how would you have me move past this? You say, well, just think of positive things, surround yourself with good people, maybe go see a movie. Have You seen any good movies lately? And so we ask them to do the impossible, but what we have the ability to connect them to is the God who does overcome, the God who can lead from sorrow, the God who can change sorrow to gladness. And this is what Jesus connects the disciples to. He says, in the midst of me seeing you again, your joy will return, your heart will rejoice, and no one can ever take your joy from you. Now this, we've got to be really careful with this. If you communicate the gospel in such a way as to tell somebody, if you become a Christian, it's just joy and happiness for the rest of your life. You'll never be sorry again. If you've done that or if you plan to do that, call them and tell them you were wrong. Tell them you lied to them. If you plan to do that, let's make new plans. There is sorrow for the Christian, but it is a different and distinct sorrow. It perhaps is a life punctuated by episodic sorrow but it is not sorrow over the trajectory of our lives, and sorrow is not our end. And so in the midst of this, we recognize no one can take our joy from us because no one can take our Savior and our relationship with him from us. Our joy is intimately tied and connected to our faith tethered with Jesus. And this is why our joy cannot be done away with. It's not that we can't be sad. Have you ever seen Justin on a Monday? That guy is lowing in the gutter. More like a Thursday. But all of us have been sad. Some of the most profound men and women of God I've ever met have been incredibly touched and wounded by sorrow and sadness. But their joy is unassailable. Because their joy doesn't ride the roller coaster of this life, their joy rests and finds its security in Jesus. And we can all be there. So Jesus tells the disciples, this is what's going to happen to you emotionally, but I want you to understand that something is going to change for you relationally as well. See, on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus, he tells them, he says, in that day, so in the day when you see me again, you will ask nothing of me. And they'll need to ask nothing of him because they have this new faith relationship to the Father through Jesus. So he goes on, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you ask nothing in my name, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. And so we see that in the resurrection of Jesus, our ability to pray to the Father is established. But he particularizes how we pray to the Father. And so he says that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son. Now this is not what this is. It's not this special verbalized statement that if you're there and you say, God, well, this is what I want from you, oh yeah, in the name of Jesus, God's in heaven. He's like, Dad, it. he knew the code word. I've gotta I've got give it to him now. He knew the code word. All those previous prayers he hadn't said in the name of Jesus, but this one he did, I've gotta give him a Ferrari. Now as a 13-year-old, perhaps maybe you think that's right, but as an adult, you have to recognize this certainly is bunk, it's false, it's, it's fallacious. There is no special thing that if you say it adds greater power to your prayer. There's no in the blood, there's no pleading anything. When we pray, we're only given one conduit through our prayer. We pray in the, in the power of the Spirit through the name of Jesus to God the Father. And in his sovereign wisdom, he is deciding whether to grant us the things we're asking for or not. So when Jesus writes and he says, you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you'll receive it, he has something specific in mind. He doesn't have a wish list. This isn't just throw open the gates and ask anything you want. I wanna be taller, I wish it was a baller, I wish I had a girl I would call. He's not saying any of those things. If you're a follower of Jesus, the requests you ask for in prayer will be typified, will be displayed, and will be characterized as one who is a follower of Jesus. And your requests will change from being selfish and self-centered to finding greater union with Jesus. Jesus, starting in, in, in chapter 15 and verses 7 through 11, has been linking together what it looks like to have our prayers answered and he couched them in terms of abiding. He said we need to abide in him, we need to abide in his word, and we need to abide in his love. And we stay there on the basis of our, our obedience to Jesus. So the faithful follower of Jesus, living life in full harmony with him and obedience to him, held up by his love, stands ready to ask those things that are most honoring to Jesus. In this life, you're going to have incredible sorrow. Some of these things, you're going to be given an opportunity to be sorrowful so that God may be glorified. God is going to entrust to some of you terrific difficulties. So that when the people around you come to you and say, Dale, how do you stand, James? How do you stand, Marie? How do you stand in this? You don't point to yourself. You don't point to your friend group. You point primarily to him. You say, he has given me joy in Christ. And he has opened up a way that I know that any time I pray, I am always heard by a father who is good, by a father who is loving, and by a father who understands all that I'm going through right now, even when I don't. This is what Jesus would have us know today. That if you're a follower and a believer of Jesus, that you have an intimate union with his father through him, and that the father stands ready to meet you at the point of your most acute Trying, need, and difficulty. Would you pray with me? Father, I am thankful for your goodness, for your word to us. Father, I pray for those brothers and sisters who are in this place today. I mean, they just feel like the world is too much. They feel far from you they feel heavy burdened god would you remind them in their heart through the the working of your holy spirit the connection they have with you through jesus would you remind them of their joy which is unassailable can't be taken from them it can't be diminished because it rests sure and steady with jesus and father for those in here in this hearing who have yet to submit themselves to you they're not walking with Jesus they haven't asked <clears throat> to know him to abide with him to have their sins forgiven God that you would show them how they too can come to know your son and in knowing him to experience his joy and close fellowship with you as so we submit these things to you in his name amen amen